Welcome to another issue of Central Environmental. I'm your host, Terry Montoya. I'm a partner at the law firm of Alvarado Smith, and I've been practicing environmental and eminent domain law since 1992. There you have it. I've dated myself. As always, I begin with my uh, disclaimer. This podcast episode, like all of our podcast episodes, reflects uh, my opinion and the opinion of any guests and not the opinion of the firm of Alvarado Smith. This episode is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended to be used or construed as general legal advice in any manner. So, let's get into our podcast. A business that is responsible for releasing an unauthorized contaminant or for violating a permit requirement is responsible for penalties and cleanup, injunctive relief to prevent any ongoing unauthorized release and potential third-party liability should the release migrate off-site. So, one of the common preliminary ways in which civil enforcement of environmental violations begin is either through information gathered at a site audit or request for information. Federal and state enforcement agencies, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, more commonly known as EPA, regional water boards, air board, the Department of Toxic Substances, they are all entitled to perform site audits and or serve requests for information to see, to probe if an environmental violation has occurred or that there is a potential threat of a violation. A site audit may also be a permit requirement performed on a regular basis or may be driven by whistleblowers or neighbor complaints, you know, based on testing data pulled by private citizens or citizen groups suggesting an unauthorized contaminant release tying it back to your facility. Requests for information are issued on the suspicion of an unauthorized release and the recipient's responsibility. Requests for information are designed to commit a business to its story, to then use it against it in a subsequent notice of violation. Penalties accompanying a violation are imposed on a per-day or maximum basis, and those can be whopping. In addition, there may be remediation and restoration requirements, and should the release be something that cannot readily be addressed, there could be a civil complaint for injunctive relief. So, ignoring a government audit or request for information or not dealing with those in a strategic matter, it's ill-advised as the enforcement agency can unilaterally pursue a notice of violation, force a cleanup, and pursue reimbursement with ever-accumulating penalties. In this podcast, we're going to discuss how to address environmental enforcement audits and requests for production with defensive strategies in mind. We'll also discuss defensive strategies in the event of a subsequent notice of violation. So let's begin with the environmental audit. 
all of the major environmental statutes contain provisions granting federal state authorities the right to conduct regulatory inspections. Clean Air Act allows audits under Section 114. The Clean Water Act and its state equivalent in California, the Porter Cologne Act, allow environmental audits under 33 United States Code Section 1318. EPA and its state equivalent in California, Cal EPA, and the Department of Toxic Substances authorize audits under the Federal Resources Cost Recovery Act. Another long title. We have lots of long titles and scientific terms in environmental law. This one's shortened to RCRA, R-C-R-A. So it's authorized audits under RCRA Section 3007, as well as under 15 United States Code Section 2610 what's called the Toxic Substances Control Act. I've represented some clients that attempt to bar a state or federal audit representative from accessing their facility on the grounds of lack of notice or business disruption. Most audits I've come across, and I can't personally recall one that, uh, that I can think of, you know, have, been, have been noticed. So in those kinds of instances, when I have a client that you know, closed the door, enforced audit representative out, I get involved and just reschedule it and get my client team ready to go. So in light of an agency statutory and or permit authority to audit a site, preparation and strategy should be the response, not obstinance. So once you receive an audit notice, designate a team of individuals within your facility that would be responsible for handling the environmental inspection with the auditor. Team members should be explicitly familiar with the environmental obligations imposed on that particular business and the permit requirements imposed on that particular business and should properly organize the relevant permits, compliance testing, and any former agency permit comments. All of those documents, minus privileged documents such as internal environmental audits, certain types of environmental communications, internal communications rather, sorry about that, should be made available for the inspector's review. The business should designate an individual who will be the inspector's primary contact and will follow the inspector throughout the duration of the audit. More on that to follow. So let's start with how an audit begins with the audit's opening conference. Audits commence with an opening conference. Ask questions as to what the inspector is there to examine and what, if any, scientific testing will be conducted as part of the audit. If there are multiple inspectors, ensure that each inspector is accompanied by a company representative. They never walk alone through your facility. At the opening conference, explain to the inspector the business's document production system Make sure you have one and the permit compliance and internal testing procedures. Make arrangements to have copies of all photographs taken by the inspector or inspectors and ensure that your inspection team is photographing what the inspector is doing, what areas are being evaluated, what testing is being performed. Those photographs could detect a testing anomaly that could later serve as a defense to a violation. In terms of testing, have 
trained staff members take duplicate samples of what the inspector is measuring. Now, transitioning to the actual inspection. Cooperate with the inspectors. Insolence, rudeness, that's not going to afford you defense or any sort of settlement posture in your favor. It's going to make things worse. Cooperate by answering specific questions with the answer that the question calls for and do not offer any additional information. And I said that from do not, from do all the way to information in all caps. Really, seriously, do not offer any additional information. If there is a question you cannot answer, then advise the inspector. I will find out and get back to you with the answer. Take detailed notes regarding what the inspector saw and said and the employees that were interviewed. Accompany the the inspectors. Again, here comes all caps. At all times. End of all caps. Do not allow the inspector to wander off alone through the facility. Think of your facility as a yard containing a pool and the inspectors are too young to swim. Never, never leave them alone. Be smart as you know your facility. Select inspection routes that will take your inspector past past as many work areas as possible or some of the more troublesome work areas. You know what your facility is, um, the weak spots in your facility and what the inspector should stay away from, certainly at certain types of the day, certain types of the production schedule. If the inspector exceeds the scope of the inspection, what do we do? Well, if the inspector wants to inspect something that was not discussed at the opening conference, attempt to reach agreement with the inspector as to the scope of the revised inspection. Involve legal counsel as you now have a problem because something new has caught the inspector's attention, a condition that may be outside the scope of your permitted activities. So take detailed notes regarding the activities that went beyond the scope of the previously agreed upon inspection. If a pattern of violations is observed by the inspector, try and correct those violations in other areas of the facility before the inspector gets there. Closing conference. Always insist on a closing conference and ask questions of the inspector as to whether any potential violations were observed. If so, Are they of the type that can be presently corrected, such that an enforcement order would not ensue? If there are continuing obligations in that regard, be precise as to what remedy would would be and how long you have to address such. Conform this process, confirm rather, this process in a subsequent email to the inspector and follow through as any promise made during the closing conference i.e. to take corrective action or to further provide documentation, can itself be a basis for violation. Post-audit activities. At the audit's conclusion, you should have a sense for what the inspectors noticed in terms of potential violations. One of the key defenses counsel can make on your behalf is to challenge whether any violation occurred. This is a challenge that encompasses both facts and law. You should conduct your own internal audit to get your arms around the facts, talk to employees and ascertain whether there are any facts of a potential violation. This audit can be done under the auspices of involving counsel to maintain an attorney-client work product privilege from later disclosure if the results are particularly damning. So let's transition to how to handle requests for information. 
Requests for information are usually a critical step to commencing an enforcement action. Requests for information are customarily exceedingly broad, and the instructions that support them may be based on incorrect law, incorrect facts that will require great care in responding to the questions. They are not to be taken lightly and should be turned over to counsel to help prepare responses, which may include evidentiary objections, responding to broad sweeping questions by recasting the questions in a manner that can be honestly or more accurately answered, or by qualifying responses with the correct factual or legal pretext. Presently, I have a client who's had lots of business ventures, and decades ago, he owned a Mercedes uh, dealership in the Stockton area. And that particular region has a significant PCE and TCE chlorinated solvent plume that in all likelihood emanated from dry cleaner or dry cleaners in the area. But businesses that were involved in cleaning parts, you know, using PCE as a degreaser before the early 1990s could also be uh, could also be part of a contributing factor towards towards the plume. In California, the Department of Toxic Substances Control has a lot of grant funding to investigate an area for former business operations, former landowners that may have used PCE in the past. So my client, along with over 325 others, received a stack of requests for information. It was it was over 120 questions. I'm thinking less than 100, less than 140, but certainly over 120 questions. And they covered everything from some questions presuming that they were responsible, presuming that they used PCE, and then they contaminated the site. And so the question wanted to know who, who all their shareholders were and who could be held responsible and their assets, the business's assets to pay for cleanup responsibilities. So they went from the very, very broad to questions that are, are on foundationless pretext that, you know, you're responsible, so tell us how much money you have to, to address the issue. And of course, all requests for information, they have to be signed by a company representative under penalty of perjury. So not to be taken lightly and not easy to uh, respond to necessarily. Now, audits been performed, requests for information have been responded to, now you receive a notice of violation. Now what? Most notice of violations settle. My strategy is to come up with the best factual and legal arguments to reduce penalties and to then lessen, you know, the fix. Returning to the penalty issues, penalties are set on a minor versus major assessment. The severity of the violation, how long the release of unauthorized contaminants occurred, how long the unauthorized release occurred at maximum contamination levels, the business's compliance history, all of those factors go into calculating penalty determination. I like to focus on some of the minor violations that are tenuously supported by data in the notice of violation and try and knock those off the overall penalty tally and then try and, and do what I can as to some of the major assessments if possible. But you don't want to take, you know, you don't want to lose credibility 
in front of the regulatory agency. So you take some some good solid targets and try and knock it off, knock it off the tally, and then you know hope the business has got a good relationship and does not have a prior environmental enforcement relationship with the government and see what you can knock off the overall tally. My best result, and I still, I'm still surprised about that, but I had a client who had uh, penalties incurred by the Regional Water Quality Control Board. It was uh, over 400, 470,000. It was over 470,000. And um, I got it down to 71,000. And some of that was by act of, uh, of providence. So penalties can be excessive and it takes, it, takes, it takes some work and some strategy and some data and some law to, uh, to knock them down. All right. When you receive the notice of violation, it will advise you of the violations and the factual support for the violations. At the outset, you want to review the notice of violation for incorrect facts or data that you could challenge in writing. And if those exist, then counsel should challenge those in writing right away. If the legal authority underpinning the violation is incorrect, in other words, the law is subject to multiple interpretations or is ambiguous, then those legal arguments should be raised upon review of the notice of violation at the outset again. The agency site inspection group may not alter their notice of violation in response, but this exercise is really to appeal to the enforcement division that has to consider its, its legal enforceability. So the auditors may always stand stridently in support of the notice of violation, but you're talking to the attorneys for, you know, the federal government and or the state. They're going to have to come up with a reasonable explanation to the enforcement team as to why the law was bent a little bit here, why it doesn't necessarily apply and why the facts may not justify the violation. In a notice of violation, the proposed fix or the remedy is also up for negotiation. Agencies do not like to dictate the remedy, leaving that up to the business to propose solutions. There is all often aspects of a fix or remedy that an agency may insist upon, but the overall fix can be negotiated. If the fix is not readily feasible, then there may be an agency referral to their counsel for an injunction or mitigation referral. But agencies, especially state agencies, are typically strapped for cash, so they're looking for cooperation and to bend in a manner that does not compromise their mandate for protecting public health. So again, there's some negotiating leverage there. My final thoughts. Environmental compliance is best accomplished through internal auditing, periodic testing and sampling, making the required repairs to ensure ongoing compliance. Once the regulatory agencies get involved, the process gets expensive. So it's best to invest the money to remain in compliance. But when unauthorized releases occur, Don't ignore the matter. Cooperate and ascertain where the government thinks the problem or problems lie. Try to remedy them immediately. And if not, work with counsel to challenge the violations based on factual and legal arguments. As always, I thank you for listening. If you have any comments, you can reach out to me, Terry Montoya, 714-852-5555. 
6862 is my direct dial, and my email is tmontoya, T-M-O-N-T-O-Y-A, at Alvarado Smith, A-L-V-A-R-A-D-O-S-M-I-T-H.com. Have a wonderful day, and take care. Thank you. Thank you.